This morning's reading from Matthew chapter 12 is on page 977 in the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. This is the word of the Lord. Great, I'll lead us in a prayer, and then we'll dive in. Jesus says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and revealed them to little children. Our gracious Father, we praise you that in the Lord Jesus we have revelation from you. And we pray that all of us, Father, would be like little children this morning, not seeking to work things out on our own, but seeking to listen to you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Is uh, religion a thing of the past? Is religion a thing of the past? Well, if you were to take the statistics of formal religions, of course you would say religion's a thing of the past. But in some ways, we're just as religious as we've always ever been. 
Believe it or not, I go to the gym each week, and um, no laughing, I do. And uh, when I go, I see people there spending hours devoted to making the sort of body that I can't seem to get. Or look at our eating regimes. People are all around us, aren't they? They're seeking enlightenment about what the latest foods are, what the superfoods are, what the clean foods are, with the hope of detoxing our bodies. Or look at the success of Marie Kondo, uh, who calls us all, if you've not come across Marie Kondo, you will do, um, she's come to our house already, and she calls us to, to cast out our possessions and uh, ritualistically arrange our sock drawers. You should see my sock drawers, they're brilliant. Uh, in the quest of a stress-free home. Or look at the tens of thousands of pilgrims that flock uh, and, and walk miles each weekend across the marble floors of Festival Place, seeking to find the product that will bring joy. So, sure, formal religions declined, but religion's not a thing of the past. There are many things in our culture that people devote themselves to. That makes things interesting, I think, for Christians in today's culture, because it can be hard for us to stick out. I mean, we tell people how Jesus has transformed our lives, how the gospel gives us joy, but people hear us often as just offering one of a number of things that we might devote ourselves to. I mean, sure, you've got Jesus, but I've got the gym, or I've got my family, or I've got my career. I mean, why is Jesus any different? That um, is the issue, I think, that underpins Matthew chapter 12. See, in this passage today, we're presented with two objects we might devote ourselves to. One is human-centered religion, and the other is Jesus Christ. And Matthew makes this comparison in this chapter to give us confidence that as we take the gospel out to the nations, we will really know that Jesus is incomparable. He's like something that no one else has. He's not another lifestyle. He's not another thing we might devote ourselves. He is something else entirely. Now, why is that? Well, it's, the key is it, um, what Jesus gives. And we saw last week that Jesus gives rest. Now, I want to spend the first part of this morning thinking a little bit more about what that rest means, because I think it underpins chapter 12. Uh, and from there, I want us to see that religion misses that rest. And religion ultimately cannot give rest. But then thirdly, I want us to see that Jesus does deliver rest. Let's just start, though, with this idea of rest. Now, sometimes in the Bible, the chapter divisions come in quite unhelpful places. The Holy Spirit doesn't inspire the chapter divisions, just in case you're wondering. And uh, this is one example where it's not very helpful. Because uh, what happens in chapter 12 comes directly off of Jesus' invitation in chapter 11. In, in case we miss it, Matthew makes it clear in verse 1. He says, um, these things happen at that time. What time? Well, the time at when Jesus says, come to me, verse 28. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Or take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, Matthew wants us to see that the debate that happens in chapter 12 over the Sabbath with the Pharisees really is over this question of how do you find rest? How do you find rest? 
Now, as Clive mentioned last week, when Jesus offers rest, he's not saying we put our feet up as a Christian. A rest is a loaded idea. Now, why is that? Well, let's get a little bit technical here. So, um, put your, put your, warm up your brains if you, if you could do that. Um, I've put a diagram on your handouts to follow, um, just to show us what we're talking about. See, when God creates the universe, you just see on the left of that diagram, we read that God rests from his work. Now, that doesn't mean that God hung up tools and kind of slumped back on the sofa and popped on Netflix. It's not that idea. It means that God stopped from his work of creation to enjoy his creation for what it is. Now, I don't know if you ever do this or it's just me, but um, when I've done a bit of a DIY project, I've put up a shelf or something, I then come back to it hours later and days later and sometimes even weeks later just to stare at my handiwork. I try and get others who have visited the house to look at it. No one seems to appreciate my work, but I, I can't help but stare at it. Is that just me, or am I... No? Good. There's others. Maybe it's uh, not a shelf for you, maybe it's a cake, and after you've made this cake, you bring others in to see it, you don't want to eat it, and you post it on Facebook. You just want to enjoy your creation. And God has been doing that ever since he stopped his work. He has been at rest. Now, in the beginning, you'll see on that diagram that humans shared in that rest. They were with him in the garden. And in the garden, you see what that rest looks like. It looks like experiencing God's blessing, his goodness, to know him personally. I mean, in in some ways, to, to have rest is to be complete. It's to be what we're meant to be as human beings. And ever since we lost our place in the garden, we have been grasping for that rest. See, all of us, I think, have that longing within us. We long for something that will make us feel complete, something beyond ourselves, beyond our world, that can make us feel truly satisfied on a deep level. That's why, despite church attendance figures falling, Our culture cannot escape its religious instincts. It's why we devote ourselves, whoever we are, to our jobs, to our relationships, to our diets, to our regimes, to our next holiday. Because we believe that in those things will come that deep sense of satisfaction. We believe they would give us rest. But Jesus cuts across all those things and says, come to me and I will give you rest. Now, as we see in our first point this morning, we don't, even though Jesus offers us rest, we don't want to find rest in him. Now, why is that? Well, if you were to take a person off the street back um, at this time and ask, where do you think rest is found? They would have spoken about the Sabbath, the commandment not to work one day a week. But the Sabbath was part of a bigger tapestry of the law, So people wouldn't just keep the Sabbath alone, but that kind of symbolized all the other uh, laws they were trying to keep. And in chapter 12, we see those laws come into conflict with Jesus Christ. We read, didn't we, that a dispute breaks out between the Pharisees and the disciples. Uh, The Pharisees are a very religious group of Jewish leaders. And they spot the disciples eating grain in verse 1, and they think that the disciples are working. Now, the Pharisees um, think they're working because um, the Pharisees knew that there was a commandment, uh, the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath. 
And because they wanted to keep that commandment, they came up with all sorts of laws about what constituted work. Here's some of them. This isn't from the Bible. This is um, from some Jewish teaching in the first century. And work meant sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, thrashing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, whitening it, combing it, dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two looms, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches. I won't go on. You get the point. There's 39 uh, different things they say constitutes work. Now, it's easy. I don't know about you, but you read a list like this and you think, you know, are these guys just kind of into um, making life difficult? Do they like clipboards and yellow jackets and that sort of thing? But it's important to see that they're not having a joke. They're not trying to make life difficult. It was because they saw that rest was found in God's law. And so they came up with all these rules to kind of put a ring fence around God's law because they believed that by keeping it, they would find rest. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus' response. So you might expect Jesus to say, come on, guys, it isn't really work. It's only nibbling a bit of sweet corn. But look at what he does say in verse 3. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Why does he speak about King David? What's that got to do with the Sabbath? Or look at what Jesus says in verse 5. Haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Okay, why, why go there? I mean, his followers clearly aren't priests, so why does this apply? Well, Jesus says that they've misunderstood the whole purpose of the law. See, what's what's the common factor between David in verse 3 and the priests in verse 5? It's this. The law always serves some greater goal. Now, we all know, don't we, that we shouldn't park on double yellow lines. You may think that you're exempt if you put on your hazards, but apparently that's not true. It's still illegal, whoever we are, to park on double yellow lines. But imagine you were walking along one day and you saw this vehicle on, at the side of the road on some double yellow lines. But as you looked, you saw that the vehicle was painted bright yellow and there were some flashing blue lights on the top. And as you walked past, someone was being carried out of a house on a stretcher. Now, I guess most of us, if not all, would not go and knock on the window and say, do you realise you're on a double yellow line? Or report them. But why not? It's because we understand there's some greater need there, isn't there? Sure, you're not meant to park on double yellow lines, but when it's serving something greater, like emergency care, then we realise the law doesn't apply. And it's the same here. Sure, there was a law that only the priest should eat the temple bread, but when something greater came, like God's king, then the law served the greater thing. Or on the Sabbath, yeah, of course, Israel was not meant to work, But actually, when something greater was needed, like the worship of God, then the priests would be allowed to work. But what about here? What's the point Jesus is making? Where he says in verse 6, I tell you, the one greater than the temple is here. 
So if we think of the Christian message as a, like another religion or another lifestyle of our age, if we think it's just a message that says follow these commands or follow this uh, practice and there'll be some reward, we'll miss who Jesus is. See, the, the Pharisees just couldn't see Jesus' significance, even though he was right in front of them, because they were so committed to religion on their own terms. They assumed that God's rest came through keeping the law, or their law, with legalistic precision. And so committed were they to that, that when the greater thing came, they couldn't see it. They just fixated on whether Jesus fitted in with their rules and regulations. When I um, have the opportunity to explain the Christian message to people, I often start by saying, you do realise it's not a religion. And when I see that, when I say that, people look at me funny and just think, I'm, yeah, don't know what I'm talking about. But um, that's had its desired effect. I say that, look, it's not a religion where I kind of follow a set of rules and, or a lifestyle with some hope of reward at the end. Jesus is something else entirely. He's something greater than that. And the trouble is, in our culture, we're so used to thinking in a kind of merits-based system that if we want to get something out of life, we have to work hard, we have to endure some hardship, and then we might be rewarded, that we tend to think of Jesus like that. But Jesus reminds us, no, he's greater than that. He doesn't operate like that. He gives us rest without the burdens that we see here and we see in our culture. But the question is, how is Jesus greater? Why does he claim that? Well, moving on to our second point, we see um, Jesus show it in verses 9 to 14. See, here uh, Jesus moves on to the synagogue and there he meets a man with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees ask Jesus in verse 10, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, this is um, a bit of an underhand move on their part because they know that there is a provision in their rules that you can heal on the Sabbath, but only if someone's life is in danger. So if you're a Pharisee and you're working on A&E and someone comes in and they, their heart stops, you're allowed to resuscitate them and still keep the Sabbath. So technically, it is lawful to heal, but not for this man, because his disability, we assume, is not life-threatening. But again, Jesus' response is very interesting here because he doesn't get into a debate about their interpretation of work and he doesn't say, come on guys, I'm not really working. If you want, I won't touch him, I'll just heal him with a word. But he replies at the end of verse 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Strange way of putting things, isn't it? Why, why does he say that? Why does he say it's good uh, it's, the point is to do good on the Sabbath. Well, it's important to understand that the Sabbath law was never an end in itself. I've marked this on the diagram. See, when God made Israel his people, he wanted to teach them that you, you're made for something more. You're made for my rest. And so imagine you were in this society back in the ancient world and you would get to Friday night and you would close the computer down, you would leave the warehouse and you would go home and you would eat a meal and you would rest for 24 hours. Imagine what that would teach you. You would remember, I'm made 
for more than just the nine till five. I'm not a working machine. I'm a human being. And as a human being, I need rest. And ultimately, I need rest with God. But that whole idea underpinning the Sabbath had been lost on the Pharisees. See, they're so committed to religion on their terms, they would rather deny good coming to this man than Jesus break the status quo. But wonderfully, Jesus goes on to demonstrate the good to which the Sabbath pointed. He asked the man to stretch out his arm in verse 13, and it is completely restored. And in healing this man, Jesus previews to us the rest that he brings. See, one day Jesus will come and speak a word to his people, like he did this man. And in a moment, our broken bodies, our broken lives, our broken hearts will be restored to what we were meant to be. But there is a perverse and sad irony at the end of all this in verse 14 because the Pharisees are so committed to religion on their terms that when Jesus reveals God's rest, they plot to kill him. They're so committed to their religion, they end up breaking the very commands that that religion's meant to uphold, like do not murder. See, Matthew shows us here quite clearly that Jesus is something greater than any human-based religion. Why? Because he can give the rest that we need and desire. See, the Pharisees aren't alone here in promising rest for our devotion. See, I'm guessing for most of us, the Sabbath isn't something that worries us an awful amount. We're not uh, worrying about whether we keep in these rules. That's not our problem today. But there are plenty of voices out there that call us to some devotion to give us rest. People say, if you eat these foods, but not these foods, then you will find health and then you will be happy as a human being. If you buy this car, if you save up for this holiday, if you get that house, then you will feel satisfied. If you invest in this retirement plan, then you can live out your final decades in bliss. Or if you follow this religious law, or these pillars, or this act of religious devotion, then God will bless you. But anything other than Jesus cannot give the rest we desire. The Pharisees cannot give rest. In fact, they're forced to, in in a bizarre way, they plot to kill the one who brings true rest. And no other religious devotion can bring it either. We eat the right foods, but we're still unhappy. We buy the dream car, and as we're driving away, we feel a bit empty. We get the retirement we work for, but we feel unsettled in our old age. We follow the religious practice, expecting God to bless us, but he seems to be silent. But as we see in our third point, rest might not come from our devotions, but it's not without the devotion of Jesus. I don't know about you, how you felt um, when it was read out, but um, I find it remarkable here that Jesus doesn't fight back or kind of um, 
lose it with the Pharisees. I mean, he, he knows the Pharisees are plotting against him, we're told, explicitly in verse 15. But he withdraws. Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, Matthew tells us it's because of verse 17. It's to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a, an old prophet. He's writing 700-odd years before this event. So it's equivalent to someone writing in the medieval era about today. And he speaks about a servant who will come and bring salvation to the world. But look at how this servant achieves that salvation. Have a look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he leads justice to victory. See, this servant will bring salvation, yes, but it will be in the most meek and gentle way you can imagine. See, a reed um, back then was used for measuring, a bit like an extendable tape measure, I guess. And when um, it was bruised or cracked, it was of no further use. Like when you broke your ruler at school, you threw it in the bin. But this servant does not do that. He keeps it. A smouldering wick, you know, when you blow out a candle, you get that kind of glowing wick and the smoke fills the room. But it's of no use and it's just waiting for you to lick your fingers and snuff it out. Well, this servant doesn't do that. And that's what we see in Jesus' work here. He brings rest to the man in the synagogue. A broken reed. He heals all those who are ill in verse 15. He doesn't snuff them out like a smouldering wick. But for Jesus to bring this rest, it means suffering himself. See, if you read Isaiah, you know that um, this quote begins a long series of quotes or prophecies about a servant who will bring rest to the world, but through suffering himself. And that's what we see here in Jesus See, in 12 verse 14, it is the first time that we're told that Jesus will be killed. It's the first time the Pharisees plot against him in this way. And notice where it comes. It comes straight off the back of Jesus healing this man. And it got me wondering as I prepared this, why did Jesus heal this man? I mean, he knew what was coming. Why why do it? I mean, he could have waited perhaps to another day, or the man, I guess, had lived this way for a number of years. He could have carried on this way. But the answer I came up with is that Jesus loved this man enough to show him God's rest. See, it's remarkable, isn't it, that Jesus is so committed to bringing God's rest, even if it means him suffering for it. He heals the man in the synagogue, but as he does, he knows that that puts him on a collision course with the religious authorities. See, the moment he brings life and rest to this man, he brings death to himself. And that same commitment Jesus shows to this man is something he shows to us in his death. See, the reason that bruised and broken reeds like you and me will experience God's rest is because Jesus was bruised and broken himself. The reason you and I are not snuffed out 
after 70, 80, 90 years, but we go on to enjoy God's rest for eternity, is because Jesus was snuffed out himself. And Jesus invites us to that rest, but it's only because he has lost it himself. See, there is, as I mentioned at the beginning, no shortage of religious devotion in our culture. All of us are seeking rest, but all those religious ideas call on us to take the burden with the possibility we might grasp rest. But only Jesus takes the burden on himself to give us rest. For us Christians here this morning, this is why the message that we've been commissioned to take out to the world is unlike anything else. It's not one option amongst many. It's not one possible route to joy. It's Jesus is the only way. We're not, as we take this message out, just sharing another religious idea or another philosophy or a life improvement plan or a 10-step program. It's the news that rest has been won for eternity in Jesus Christ. It's why we can be bold as we take this message. See, there are plenty of places, of course, where people are going to offer some reward for devotion, but only Jesus delivers it. Jesus says to me, to, to us, come to me and I will give you rest. And the question is, will we share his invitation to rest with a world that so desperately needs to hear it? Let's pray. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the Lord Jesus' work here in bringing rest in the most gentle and meek way. And we praise you, Father, for his work on the cross where he revealed that to us. Please, our Father, we pray that you would give us confidence in the rest he gives. And please give us boldness to share that rest with a world that we know, Father, needs to hear it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.